ultimately what's happening here is even as Moses starts to complain again towards the end of this passage, his calling is being fulfilled. And we'll see this so clear as we kick off next week in chapter 6. But let's start talking through this idea of fear because it's something that we don't talk a lot about in the church. And there's healthy fear, okay? And there's unhealthy fear. Fear of the Lord is healthy, right? The uh, proverb says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, right? So there is this sense of fear leads us to worship. Those words are very similar, right? When our, our entire being is captured in this fear of the Lord, our entire being now is worshiping the Lord because we're an inferior being who now recognizes something bigger than us, okay? That's a good fear. Let's put that over on this side. Then there's this unhealthy fear, and this is what's running rampant right now. Not just within the church, but everywhere. We're scared of everything. We're scared to be in groups. We're scared to be alone. We're scared to go across the pond to another country. We're scared to stay at home. We're scared to get up and go to church, or we're scared to watch church online. We're scared of everything. You can't let your kids turn on the TV because of what they might see. And really what's happening in this fear is we're seeing the erosion of hope. That's what we're seeing. Okay? This is exactly what's happening in Exodus chapter 5. The hope of the Israelites is being eroded brick by brick. And so as they're called to continue to make these bricks, their fear, every time they lay a new one down, their fear grows because this repetition, this hard labor is starting to mount and their hope is dissipating. I want to remind you as we're talking about fear of what Jesus tells us in John chapter 16. This is verse 33 if you want to jot it down. I don't think it will be on the screen. Uh, Matthew 11 will be. John 16, 33, it says, In this world you will have, do you know what this next word is? In this world you will have trouble or tribulation. Tribulation is a little bit scarier than trouble, right? In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. Because what? Jesus, he says, I have overcome the world. So all those things that we put over here, all those things that are distracting us from our healthy fear, Jesus is saying, I've come to, I've overcome that. I've come into the world and I've overcome the world. This misplaced fear erodes our hope and ultimately leads to disappointment or discouragement. And that's where we're going to spend the next bit of time as we transition into Matthew chapter 11 and what I think is maybe one of the greatest non-Jesus stories of disappointment in the Bible. Okay? So the question is not, will you ever be disappointed? You know this? You've probably already experienced this. I've probably already, what are we, eight, what, 10, 12 weeks in uh, to my leadership here? I've probably already disappointed half of you in the room, okay? My kids are in here, they show up every day, and I'm disappointing them regularly. Not on purpose, I love my kids a lot, but there are things that we do as sinful, fallen people that disappoints those around us. But I'm talking about real disappointment. When you feel like, oh God, this is exactly what you have for my life, and then all of a sudden, it's not that anymore. Have you been there? That's the kind of disappointment I'm talking about. Not the, oh, I didn't get the grade that I wanted, or I didn't get the job on the first interview. Not that disappointment, but this greater disappointment of, God, do you really love me? This thing that I'm walking through tells me that you don't. That's the kind of disappointment I'm talking about. That's the kind of disappointment that the people of Israel are going through. So the question is based, though, on the promise of God. How will we respond? That's the better question. How will you respond? Not will you ever face it, but how will you respond when disappointment, when discouragement takes root in your life? What do we do with it? So I think this, I wrote this down. Uh, I was at the beach all week. It's hard to be disappointed at the beach. 
Um, it's a really good place to write sermons, by the way. So uh, we have a two-year-old. So if you don't know my family, I have an eight-year-old boy. He's our oldest. A five-year-old girl, Mary London, and Berkeley is our baby. She's two. She still needs a nap, which is super convenient for me because I also need a nap when we're at the beach. And so I'm always the one who volunteered. Oh, she's cranky. I'll take her. You know, and we run up and give her something to eat, and then we take naps. But that is when I would be able to sit in the house and really dwell on what is, what is, what is this passage about, right? It's a great place to write sermons when you're overlooking waves crashing down and somebody else having to chase the, the other two kids. So, but this is, this, this is the main idea, okay? Disappointment lies where hope once resided, Okay? Disappointment lies where hope once resided. So Matthew chapter 11, this is a story of John the Baptist. And if you don't know the story of John the Baptist, John the Baptist and Jesus are kind of cousins. And uh, John is the one who leaps in his mother's womb when, uh, when Mary, Jesus' mom, and John's mom get in close contact. John recognizes the deity of Jesus immediately and leaps, right? Okay, um, that's John. But at this point in John's life, he's been imprisoned. He's been imprisoned because of uh, free speech wasn't the thing that they had, okay? So he said, uh, hey, you shouldn't be sleeping with this person, and that wound up putting him in jail at the point now where the daughter of the one that he called out wants his head on a platter, okay? So John is facing great trouble, okay? But he says this, this is, John, this is uh, Matthew, sorry, Matthew chapter 11, verse 2. Listen to this, and this will be on the screen if you want to follow along. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, so Christ has already begun his ministry, he's doing amazing things in the world. He's traveling town to town, he's healing people, uh, blind people are gaining their sight, lame people are beginning to walk, withered hands are not withered hands anymore. Okay, so Jesus has done amazing things. Those deeds have now reached back to John who is in prison. When John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Doubt, fear had overtaken John's life, right? Because all of this had... John's the one who baptized Jesus, right? So John knows who Jesus is, because when, when John takes Jesus down into the water, what happens? What? The Holy Spirit comes down, right? It was just magnificent. It's not like you could miss that, okay? So something magnificent happens when John takes Jesus into the water and brings him back up. John knows exactly who this is, but fear had crept in where hope once, once, where hope once resided, and now he's discouraged. Verse 4, Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. Go be a witness. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Verse 6, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now what Jesus is doing here is he basically just told John, you're about to die. Okay? Jesus quotes back to Isaiah. This is chapter 41, 42. And he's quoting, saying, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk. Now there's a part that comes after that where it says, The prisoners will be freed. Jesus leaves that part out. That's not the will of God for the life of John. And in that moment... John must have known, because John would have known the scriptures. He would have certainly known the scroll of Isaiah. 
And he would have said, are you sure that's all he had to say? He didn't leave anything out? Are you leaving anything out? Right? That would have been, that's how well they knew the word of God. John knew immediately what was going to happen. Verse 7, as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? Do you see this repetition? Anytime where the Bible is being repetitive, we've got to slow down and pay attention. This is exactly what we're doing in Exodus chapter 5. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. And then he goes on to list out John's resume, which is a pretty good resume, right? Jesus is basically saying John is the greatest human that's ever walked the earth, real human, not God and human, but the greatest human. And yet, even though how great he is, this is still the will of God for the life of John, and John will eventually die. I would imagine that wasn't what John had envisioned as he baptizes Jesus. Do you? I don't think so. I think there was a grave disappointment in John's heart as he hears this. Are you the one, or is there someone else? Are you the one? Are you sure you're who you say you are? This is what the people of Israel are doing in Exodus. Well, you said that you were going to set us free, and yet now we don't have straw to make our bricks. We've got to go find our straw to make our bricks. The burden is now more burdensome. And Moses cries out at the end of chapter 22 with three, three cries. One to God's goodness, one to God's purpose, and one to God's actions. Why have you caused trouble for this people? Right? That's, to, that's about God's goodness. Why have you done this? Have you ever asked or heard the question, well, how could a good God, right? This is the great rebuttal to faith. How could a good God let, right? How could a good God let my child have cancer? How could a good God let war happen on the earth? How could a good God not save this person? How could a and we just keep going and going. And we ask this question, and they're really questions of doubt, aren't they? Are you really who you say you are? Moses cries out to God's goodness. The second one, he cries out to God's purpose. Why did you ever send me? He was doubting his calling. He's been doubting his calling from the beginning. And he does it again. Why did you send me? And lastly, he cries out to God's action. You haven't delivered your people. You said you were going to, and you haven't done it. Now, we've been talking about this all the way through Exodus, is that God is going to do what God's going to do when God desires to do it. Does this mean, so because the people's burdens have been added onto, has God forgotten his promise? Not yet he hasn't. Now, when all else has failed, it seems like God has forgotten his promise, and yet he hasn't. There is still hope even when the people don't feel it. There's a great Hebrew word uh, in, in this passage from uh, Hebrew, I mean, Exodus chapter 5. The, the word for bondservant or uh, servant is the same Hebrew word that we use for worship. Okay? It's this word abed. And 
if you really want to make it Hebrew, you say hapet, okay? But it would just say abed, okay? And this word means slave, means servant, means um, I'm giving my life over to the service of another. This is exactly what we're doing in worship. So what the people of Israel are being asked to do by Pharaoh is to worship Pharaoh. That's ultimately what Pharaoh desires. He doesn't want bricks. He wants their service. He wants their affections. He wants their attention. And guess what? He has it. He has it. But you can only worship one thing. You can't worship two things. And as they worship Pharaoh, they've forgotten to worship the great I am, Yahweh. This is the ultimate flaw and fallacy of the people of Israel is they become distracted in their labor, and they've forgotten their worship. And Moses and Aaron are asking for respite in order to reclaim the worship. That's the great threat to Pharaoh. Isn't that they have three days off. It's that they remember to worship their true God, the God who is the creator of all things. Worship is an act of service. What do we call this when we gather together? It's a worship service, Okay? Some churches have orders of service. We don't have those yet. We also don't have a building. Doesn't mean this is, this is no less a worship service. It is a gathering of God's people as bondservants, as slaves of the kingdom of God. Okay, that is what we're doing here. Now, it seems like a lot of bad news. Okay, and it kind of is. It kind of is. Until Jesus comes, okay? Ultimately, spoiler alert, I think we've done this a few times, Moses doesn't make it into the promised land. You talk about disappointment. He spends his whole life fighting for God's people, and he's the one who doesn't get to go. He dies just, I mean, I, so I stood on Mount Nebo a few years ago, and it's amazing how close the promised land was. But it was always in the distance for Moses. He never made it. And yet God is still good, and God still redeemed his people. This is what we see in the life of Christ. It seems like he's a long way off, but Christ has bridged the gap. He's come to get us. Moses was never going to make it. Jesus did, though. So no matter what despair, no matter what disappointment, no matter what fear or discouragement you're walking through in your life, Christ has come to you. You don't have to work your way to him. The people of Israel forgot that. That God comes to them. Moses didn't have a flint and started the fire at the burning bush. God did that by himself. Okay? God does the work in redeeming his people. But we need each other. Because as I'm walking through something, I need you to remind me of the goodness of God. As you're walking through something, you need me to remind you of the goodness of God. He hasn't forgotten you. And now, there's an empty tomb that proves it. There's a bloody cross and an empty tomb. I want to leave us here with this idea that God strengthens us by and through the gospel. And I'm reminded of Romans chapter 16. This is verse 25. It says, Now to him who has power, to him who has power to strengthen you according to my gospel. What do we need in times where hope is fading into disappointment? We need the power of God to strengthen us according to the gospel. And what is the gospel? The gospel is this, simply. The gospel is the good news that God has saved sinners. That's it. We like to church it up a lot. That's the easiest definition. What is the gospel? I was dead, now I'm not. 
Hello. <laughs> We're in Exodus chapter 5. We've made it to Jesus now, okay? Are we good? You were dead and now you're not. That is the good news of the gospel. That is what the people of Israel needed to hear. At the end of Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Jesus says this, and this is one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. I don't know if you're allowed to have favorite verses. If you were, this is one of mine. He says, come to me. Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden. And he doesn't stop there, because it's not just come to me. It's come to me and I will give you rest. We like to think that we cultivate and create our own rest, right? We're going to go to the beach and have vacation. We're going to make ourselves rest. Well, guess what? That's impossible, okay? Because either somebody's smoking too close to your tent, or their music is too loud, or the kid got too far out into the waves and now they can't get back, or there's two red flags. You talk about disappointment to an eight-year-old boy who wants to boogie board the whole time. You're not allowed in the water with two red flags. Learn that the hard way, Right? We see these disappointments, and Jesus comes and says, come to me. What a tenderness that is. I would imagine it's one of those, like, he just squats down and says, come to me, right? Come to me. All who labor, what, what good news for the people of Israel. All who labor and are heavy laden. Your burdens are heavy. I'll take it. Give it to me. I think we need to take seriously the reading of God's word. Us at the branch and us as the church as a whole. I think when we do that, we get reminded of these promises. I think we want to read Exodus and think about like this great story of wealth and prosperity and goodness now. Right? Isn't that what our culture says? It's like, go get your best self. Right? And if that shot or injection won't work, well, this little cover-up will or whatever the thing is, Right? And we're constantly in search for something that's going to make us feel better, something that's going to make us faster, something that's shinier, sparklier. I don't know if that's a word. It is now, right? We're, we're in constant search for the next great thing that's going to make us who we always imagined or dreamed to be. And yet we'll get that next thing, and then what do we feel? Despair, discouragement, disappointment. Because we've allowed these other things to creep in where only hope should reside. That's it. And our culture doesn't want that hope. They want you to have these other things. And as perverse and as wandering and as lost as our culture has gotten, what if hope stood in that place? What if that's the thing, that the flagpole that we stuck in the ground as Christians, as followers of Jesus? Not on some political aisle, but as the body of Christ and said, you know what, right here. This is where we're going to put hope, and we're going to put our arms around it, and we're not going to let go of it. You need hope? You can find it right here. We're people of hope. We are limited as humans, right? We talked about this a few weeks ago. God is omniscient. He's omnipotent. We are not. I don't know all things at all times. I can't be in all places at once. Neither can you. But God can. I think we need to take his promises seriously. That he's come to redeem his children, to bring them back. Come to me. Come to me. Here you will find rest. Amen? Each week we respond. This is what we're doing when we take communion. It is a response. 
If you're a Christian, whether you're a member of this church or not, we invite you to come and do that. If you're not a Christian, we invite you to maybe sit and just reflect on what, a life, what life with Christ might look like. And we'll have some of our leaders standing somewhere. We'll probably go over here. Last time I think we did it by the door. It got kind of crowded. But we back over behind the sound booth. Come talk to somebody. But as we go and we take communion, would we remember? Remember the body broken, the blood spilled, hope fulfilled. It's Exodus chapter 5. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the, the beautiful words of your scripture, that it was preserved and passed down, it was given to us. Perfectly inspired, inerrant in every way. I pray that it would be profitable to us as brothers and sisters that you would call us out that in seasons of life where we turn to things that the world is telling us is going to make our life better, that we would be reminded that you are the, our only hope in life and death. That we are not our own, but we belong fully to you, bought with the most expensive blood of Christ. So Lord, I pray now as we enter a time of communion, you would help us to reflect and remember the great sacrifice of our Savior. I pray that we would reflect on the burden of your people in Israel, that those burdens had been fully taken off of our shoulders and placed solely onto those of your Son. So I thank you for friends from different parts of the state who are here this week that we can somehow, because of your great sovereignty, meet in classrooms in a park and rec and worship you. What a gift. We love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.